it starts smallest piece of skin in the game that I consider valid is one point, and that's a valid email address, right? Because you don't give your proper email address to anybody. So this is one skin in the game point, okay? So you see, I like to put numbers to things. Then what if somebody says, okay, I like your product. Here's $20 for a pre-order. Lots of skin in the <laughs> Lots of skin in the game, right? Uh -huh. So that is the first thing. Hey, welcome to the Product Compass podcast. My name is Paweł Huren. Here I interview product management authors and leaders to get an actionable advice on how to build and grow customer-facing tech products and exceptional product teams. Today my guest is Alberto Savoia, the first director of engineering at Google. Alberto is currently an innovation lecturer, coach and agitator at Stanford University. He's also the author of an international bestseller, The Right It. In this episode, we discuss why so many ideas fail and, most importantly, how to make sure your ideas succeed. Are you ready? Great. So, let's get into it right now. So, Alberto, thank you for being here. Welcome to the Product Compass. I'm a big fan of your work, in particular your book, The Right It, and I will have a few questions about it. Uh, but before we go into the details, I would like to ask you about your journey and what is your story can you tell us a little bit about yourself thank you yeah it's great to be here you know i've been following you you've been following me you know you're like the number two product management expert on linkedin Let, let's make you number one and i'll be happy at number <laughs> two. my journey i started you know i was born in italy i came to the us and uh, i landed in silicon valley and of course you know i became enamored of uh, science and technology so i became my degree is in math but i became a software engineer and i really loved computers i spoke well with them and they spoke well to me i was very lucky like the first real job i landed was at sun microsystem when it was a little startup pre pre ipo and then it became this giant company that was my first startup experience and then after 13 years i left sun microsystem to do my first startup and we raised $3 million in uh, venture capital. 18 months later, we were acquired for $100 million. Mm -hmm. So I started to think, wow. boy, this is so easy. Why doesn't everybody do it? Right? I called my you friends in Italy. Hey, Mario, <laughs> come to America. Right I sold my first company. I joined another little startup that nobody knew at the time called Google. And then, you know, Google became Google. So that was like three times in a row. And I thought, boy, I'm really good at picking company. And this is really easy. Uh -huh. So I thought I was the Italian Steve Jobs, you know, Stefano Giobini. And I thought, okay, Google is going to be fine with or without me. So I left Google and I thought, okay, now I'm going to do another startup. And this time I'm going to raise more money because, you know, if I turn 3 million into 100 million, I should be able to turn 30 million into a billion. Sure. Of course, the math doesn't work that way, right? But it's, it's, it was a nice model. So I did my second startup, raised almost 30 million, 25 million. We did all the due diligence for this new product. It's it's a software development tool, but everybody told us, if we can do what you say it will do, if you build it, we will buy it. So I was convinced, the VCs were convinced. I convinced, you know, 60, 70 people to join our company and get stock options in the startup. We built exactly what we said we were going to build and we launched it. And it was really hard. You know, a few people bought it, but nowhere as many as we thought would buy it. And so for the first time, I was bitten by failure. And that's when I started this process of introspection, right? How can it be that people that really know how to build, they do their market diligence, their market research, they build what they said they were going to build, and the people said they were going to buy it. And then we launch it, 
and it didn't happen. So there is a bug in the system and I resolved, I'm going to find that bug because it's very painful. And out of that came the idea of prototyping. So I returned to Google after this startup that didn't work. And Google was having the same problem, right? It's not just a startup problem. Remember Google Mm -hmm. Wave, Google Glass, Google Plus, a lot of products built by the very same people that brought you Google Search, Gmail, Maps, all these successful products, and they fail. So I became my passion became in product management to make sure that you build products that if you build them, people will like it. And I found out that there's a very big gap in how people do that. It's a lot of voodoo. It's more like alchemy than chemistry. It's more like astrology than astronomy. And so I said, well, I'm a math and science background. I'm going to put some science into it. So that's my maybe too long story. Yeah, I experienced it also in the past when building a product and many people told me that they will build it and buy it and they invited us for every possible meeting. All the doors were open. This was a B2B product. And I remember that after we built it, people didn't want to to open their wallets. Why does it happen? What is the reason that we keep making those errors? Well, the, the, the simple reason is that we people fall in love with an idea, right? So no, we agree on this number, right? About 80% of new companies, new products, new services, new movies, new books fail in the market, right? So this is anybody who's been in business for a while knows that this is the case. So your reason, right? It's called Wittgenstein's ruler said, look, when you use a ruler to measure a table, you also use a table to measure the ruler. So if you measure the table and the ruler says it's one kilometer, you think there's something wrong with this ruler, right? So you keep building things wrong. So I said, how is it if we... 80% 80% of products fail in the market after doing market research and nobody builds the product said nobody said they're going to build this product it sucks and they build it so they do the market research and then it fails so clearly the problem is in how we do our market research right you said a magic phrase which is people don't open their wallet so one of my expression is it's much easier to get people to open their mouth than to open their wallet so that is the ultimate test and I realized there, there are several problems. So one of the main ones is that people, when they do market research, they do not collect skin in the game. So what does skin in the game? If I ask you, hey, here's my new product, you know, like uh, this nice beauty blue notebook, would you buy it? And you'll probably say, yes, okay, yeah, it looks nice. I, I would love it. You know, it has a nice Google logo on it. I said, great, I'm going to manufacture a million of them. And then I go and sell it. I said, yeah, at the time I need it, and I, right now I would not want it. If, on the other hand, you say, yes, Alberta would buy, and by the way, here's a dollar deposit, so I'll buy one of the first ones, it's another matter. So the concept of skin in the game, you know, I, I like to have props when I, when I teach the class. So mm-hmm. this is a skin caliper, right? So you use it to measure technically, you know, how much body fat you have. So here's how I try to tell my students, say, okay, you have a new product, and you go to the market, and there's many types of feedback that you can collect. Okay, so I put them in this in this car. So let's let's see what the feedback may be. One of them is you ask people and people say, yes, I would buy. Okay, so let's measure how much skin in the game this is. Zero, yeah. right? <laughs> or what's another one? You do a poll, right? Zero skin in the game. A like on social media, zero. You do a survey, zero. Opinions, zero. So these are all zero. It starts smallest piece of skin in the game that I consider valid is one point, and that's a valid email address, right? Because you don't give your proper email address to anybody. So this is one skin in the game point, okay? So you see, I like to put numbers to things. Then what if somebody says, 
okay, I like your product. Here's $20 for a pre-order. Lots of skin in the <laughs> lots of skin in the game, right? Uh -huh. So that is the first thing. If your market research data does not have skin in the game, it does not count. I mean, it really counts like zero point. You could have a million views on YouTube, and uh, to me, it's still not is worth less than a million views on YouTube as worth less than somebody giving you twenty dollars to buy an order. So that's one of the key problems that I discovered in market research. Okay, talk a lot about using data and collecting data. So, can you tell me a bit about this concept of? your data, your own data versus other people's data? Right. So when I tell people, you know, one of the big expressions I learned at Google is data beats opinion. All right. So people say, okay, great, Alberto, I will give you data. The data shows that, you know, people spend uh, $1.2 trillion to buy shoes. Okay. So, and uh, Nike sells, you know, $20 million, billion worth of shoes each year. So there is a data that the market will work. And so our new shoe will be a success because it's such a big market. So that's what I call OPD. That's other people's data, mm -hmm. right? Just because others have succeeded with a similar idea doesn't mean that you will succeed. But also, just because others have failed with a similar idea doesn't mean that you will fail. Think about Tesla and electric car, right? So if Elon Musk did the market research on the past data on electric cars, he would have seen failure after failure, right? Honda failed, Ford failed, Toyota failed. Basically, there were no electric car success. But then he, what did he do? He collected his own Yoda. Yoda stands for your own data, mm -hmm. right? So which, and by the way, Yoda, remember, must have skin in the game, right? So if he doesn't have skin in the game, it also doesn't count. <laughs> so here's a typical example, right? Since everybody knows the Tesla story, he said, well, instead of saying, if I build it, will you buy it? He goes to the market and said, if you buy it, if you give me a pre-order, I will build it for you. And you may have to wait one or two or three or four or four years. So imagine if I really, really want a sexy Tesla electric car and I put down $5,000 deposit, that is significant skin in the game. And that is Yoda. So you collected data about your own car, right? Teslas were kind of sleekier, sexier, faster than say, you know, kind of the, the previous electric cars. So any data about the previous electric cars did not apply because they were just there for, you know, a ecological reason. So collect Yoda, your own data, ignore mm -hmm. other successes and other failures in the market completely. Yeah, that's a pretty strong statement. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you ignore it because look, I with pre-totyping, right, what I teach you is it's so easy to collect your own data. Mm -hmm. It's actually easier to collect your own data. If people will buy your idea, <clears throat> I'm using this as a silly example, right? The Google brand, the booklet, notebook, it's much easier to collect your own data than to go and research how many notebooks are sold in the US? What is the average price? This is on data. It's new. It's recent. It applies to your idea. So that's why I, I'm a big fan of it. Also, you mentioned in the book, there is this concept of XYZ hypothesis. Yes. You can use it together with collecting your own data, right? How does it work? The method I teach is very systematic. It's like, you know, it's a scientific method. You start with a hypothesis and then you do experiment to see if your hypothesis is true. When I tell people, what is your idea? Usually they gave very, very, very vague explanations. Since we started using Tesla, let's use it as an example, right? Because everybody knows. Here's a bad example of an XYZ hypothesis, of a hypothesis. People want to save the environment and they also want sexy and fast cars. So we're going to build a car that is electric, but it's also fast and sexy. And a bunch of people are going to buy it. So these are so many problems, right? It's a, it's a very fuzzy idea. 
who are these people? How fast is this car going to go? How much is it going to cost? What percentage of them will buy? So I teach them to take their fuzzy idea and turn it into a very systematic hypothesis that you can test. So let's take the Tesla Model 3 as an example, right? So Tesla was very successful with the Roadster, the big car, you know, $100,000 car. So the Model 3 was very different, right? It was planning to sell for, for like $40,000 and they would have made many, many, many more, right? Because it's more affordable. So they could have said people will buy a cheaper Tesla because they want a Tesla, you cannot afford the money. Very, very vague. Think instead if they thought, well, we need to sell a certain number of them per year to justify building a factory. So in this case, the XYZ hypothesis would be something like this. At least 5% of mid-sized luxury sedan buyers will buy a Tesla Model 3 in 2019 for $40,000 or more. Right. So you see how that is in one sentence, like a mini business plan. I'm not a fan of business plans, right? Most of them are complete BS, right? They're just works of works of fiction. <laughs> but in it, I say, look, five percent of people who buy mid-sized luxury sedan in the US. Okay, how many people buy luxury sedan US in the US each year? Uh, that number is six hundred thousand. So five percent of that is thirty thousand. You multiply that by the other price that you put in the XYZ hypothesis, at least $40,000. And so you say, well, if this hypothesis is true, we will sell $1.2 billion worth of Model 3s per year, mm -hmm. right? Okay, so you have this hypothesis. And the beauty about having a very, very firm and clear hypothesis is that you can test it, right? A hypothesis exists to be tested. So how do you test that 5% of the people will buy Tesla Model 3? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. the way you don't do it is that you build tens of thousands of them and then you try to sell them and nobody buys it, right? Tesla did what Elon Musk did is he, on April 1st, I think it was 2016, he announced, he just showed the image, right? He just mm -hmm. had one model, non-working model of the Model 3. He said, this will be available in three years. If you want it, you go to our website, give us a deposit for oh, $1,000. Is that skin in the game? Mm -hmm. That's a lot of skin in the game, right? So what happens is on April 1st, he made this announcement. On April 2nd, he collected 260,000 deposits for $1,000. So he had more than a quarter billion dollars of skin in the game. For, and people were willing to wait three years to get a car and put down a $1,000 deposit, right? So would you say that given the result of that experiment, the hypothesis is likely to be true? Absolutely. You go and invest, you build the factory, you have this massive investment to build a new car, but you do it with the confidence that there is a market. So essentially, in this model, you flip the market research from, if we build it, we will buy it, which is how most focus groups work, right? Or surveys, to, if you buy it, we will build it. And then your odds of building something that you know is not successful just kind of drop dramatically. I mean, you can always fail, right? There may be a competitor who does it better, or maybe you, you cannot build it. But at least you're not failing because you didn't collect the proper market data. How can we test uh, those ideas? How can we test those hypotheses? There is a concept of prototype. Some people may wonder how it's different from prototype. Very good question. So most people, if you're a software engineer, you like to write code and build software, right? If you're a car engineer manufacturer, you like to build the car. Now, this is great. The problem is that you want to build the prototype to show that you can build the car or that you can write the software. The problem is that building prototypes, first of all, it's unnecessary, right? 
Because, you know, if you're a car maker, I know that you can build the car, right? If you're a software developer, I know that you can write the software. So you're proving nothing to me. It's a way to bypass the hard work. And the hard work is to prove that there is a market. So instead of prototyping, which you, you do prototyping to prove that you could build something, right? That it will work. But that is not the reason why most ideas fail, right? Most ideas fail because there is no market for them. So prototyping is something that you do before you actually build the product and you use it not to validate the fact that you can build the product because there is very low risk there. You validate the fact that people will be interested. So since I like props, I have another prop to show you. And by the way, these are all things that I did in real life. So everything in the book, all of the examples, I may have changed some of the names, but these are all mm-hmm. real life ideas. Now, when Amazon announced Alexa, you know, the Echo, I remember, would I use it? Would I buy one? So I thought, what would I use it for? So I built a prototype, right? I did no hardware, no software. This is a can of uh, beans, right? Mm-hmm. And then I... I wrapped it with, you know, with this black tape and then I put a user interface on it. You know, like this is the speaker, this is a microphone. So it's not a prototype. It doesn't work, right? It's it's just an artifact. And in this case, I wanted to test with myself if I would use such a product. So I, I put this artifact, you know, and I put it, for example, in my kitchen. And, you know, because I like to maybe when I cook, I like to listen to music. So I would put it there and I would ask it. I, I called it how, like in the uh, Space Odyssey. So I would say, Hal, play some Led Zeppelin music. And, you know, I would imagine that he would play. Or there's how many uh, teaspoons in a cup, right, for cooking? And then he, he would answer. So, or then put in the bedroom and say, Hal, wake me up tomorrow at 7 a.m. So without actually building the proper working prototype, I built this device to test, not if I could build it, but if I would use it. Right. Mm-hmm. So in, in this case of a prototype, I use it to build it to test on myself. This is just one of the many types of prototypes, right? Some some people may have a web service that mm-hmm. uh, maybe you call them. You can ask for book recommendations online, right? So may, maybe you have an idea. I said, you know, ask me for book recommendations, and you create the website. You said, I would like to learn so and so about product management. Wh- which books do you recommend? Okay, it's, a, it's an idea, right? You could actually build all the back end and have all the books recommendation, right? To say, okay, if they ask, I would like a book about a product market fit, or I would like a book about scaling. And then you would have all this big complex software to do. That's building the, the product, right? So, but if you want to see, you want to know if people would like to have your suggestions for a book, right? So before you do all that work, that may take, you know, days, weeks, mm-hmm. or months. So you would create what I would call a mechanical Turk prototype. So you have a very simple website. You have, you know, you enter, what kind of books would you like a recommendation of? And instead of having the software answer based on your database of recommendations, right? You would answer it personally. So it's a mechanical Turk, because if mm-hmm. you read my book, I explain why it's called the mechanical Turk. You haven't built any software. You're simulating the behavior of that software because you want to see if people would actually use the service. Now, let's say you launch it and you get 50 questions a day and every book recommendation goes to Amazon and you get a commission. I'm, I'm just making this idea up, right? So, boy, okay, people want the service, they, they use it, and you know, I, I can make $50 a day with just no effort. So I'm going to invest two or three days to actually build the proper database and website. So that's build the prototype 
just like the word pre means pre means before before you build the prototype before you build the product build the prototype mm -hmm. and of course i explain and give many many examples in the book one thing that i always struggle with is that how ethical using prototypes is because i often refer to landing page for a non-existing product and use that people have to invest in some form in this product like sharing their data or investing time or maybe trying to pay for it. Are there any con ethical considerations uh, related to prototypes? Yes. And my answer is that prototyping is the most ethical thing that you can do. The most unethical thing you can do is imagine, so you have an idea, you collect mm -hmm. money, you get a loan from your parents or you get money from the VCs. You hire a lot of people convinced that your idea is going to work, even though you know that 80% of ideas fail in the market. All right. So you build this company, you build this startup, you launch it, you waste months, years, millions of dollars. A lot of people quit perfectly good job to join your startup and then it fails. Now, from my point of view, that is the most unethical thing you can do. It's just like me, a doctor said, look, oh, you, you have this condition. I recommend this treatment. And the treatment fails 80% of the time. You have a 20% chance of surviving. <laughs> you know, people just get it completely wrong. It's unethical to products that don't work, that end up in landfills. You waste the environment. You waste people money. That's, that's really the worst thing that you could do. Pretotapping can be done with 100% ethical ways. So uh, an example of the, uh, the pretotype, you know, is how I approach the book, right? Writing a book, you also learn yourself, is a lot of work. Do you agree? Uh, right. I have not started you, yet. You also, you also agree yeah, that most books um, fail in the market? Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. If I spend a year to write a book instead of, you know, spending time with my family or at work, the publisher spends a lot of money to publish it. It gets launched. I lose time. The publisher loses money. They end up being tossed in the bin because nobody buys them. That's the most unethical thing. So how did I prototype writing a book? Well, I thought, I'm not going to spend a month. So I was at Google. This is an actual copy of the book. I'm going to write a prototype version of the book. I'm only going to invest one week of my time. So it was 72 pages. By the way, this is the 10th edition. It's still available for free, right? Because I wrote it at Google. So <laughs> it's a, and Google allowed me to publish it. So I put this out. Initially, you know, I, I, I circulated at Google and then I made the PDF and it kind of escaped into the wild. And so I had the tens of thousands of people read it and mm. because of so there was was would you say there was interest in the book yes right in fact mm. people translated it even without asking me they say well Alberta, i got the pdf i translated it into italian i hope you don't mind right so i knew that there was interest in the book so it was pretty easy for me to get a publisher and because i knew that if i wrote the book the chances of success were 80 percent instead of 20 percent, i actually went and invested a year to write a proper book and then when the book launch was successful, I earned my book advance. The publisher made money. The readers learned some new tools. So a very, very ethical example. Of course, you can take the most ethical thing, right? You can take a syringe that you can use to give medicine when you inject people with poison. But in the book, I teach you exactly how to do prototyping in a 100% ethical way. Remember, the most unethical <laughs> thing you could do is to take money, and take time, build a the product that nobody buys. It's unethical to do something knowing that 80% of the time it will fail. Yeah, that's that's a pretty insightful example. But I wonder 
how much proof is enough? Because in, in the case of the book, there is just, you did it once, right? But is it possible to start with a cheaper prototype, prototype and then iterate to get more confidence? And how do we know that we have enough confidence? Yeah. Again, I have a lot of videos. I call, you know, I call it the math of successful product managers. Now, uh -huh. I know most, I like math because I'm a mathematician. Most people do not like math. So I've made it very, very simple, right? So if you can add plus one or minus one, I give you the tools to do that. Maybe after you post this, we'll put a link to those lessons. But here are the basics. Your investment in an idea in terms of time and money should be proportional to the data that you have, to the evidence that people will buy. Just this week, I was helping a, you know, a startup, just two Stanford students that have this idea for a product for the construction industry. And they asked 10 of their potential customers if they were interested. And three of them signed up to say, yes, we, we want to work with you. So they're giving skin in the game in the forms of time. It doesn't have to be money all the time. If I give you two hours of my time to help you test an idea, that is skin in the game. To me, two hours of my time are much more worth than $20. So then they asked me, Alberto, is it okay if at this point we write a very simple version of the software? So we spend you know, two weeks and $5,000 to build it. And I would say, yes, in this case, you can start to build you know, an MVP or a mini, mini MVP. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you have at least three people that want to use it. So let's say you build this. And then they like it and they say, boy, we'd like to have this feature and that feature. Then you get more skin in the game, more evidence, and then you can amplify your investment. So your question is very good. You increment. Nope. Think about Amazon. Amazon, now you can buy anything. What did it sell at the beginning? It sold books, right? And it started in the garage. By the way, Amazon is a prototype, right? And Amazon does a lot of prototype. They're a client of mine. I, I learned more from them than they probably learned from me. But remember... When Amazon was launched in Jeff Bezos' garage, did they have inventory of books? What do you think? I think they did it manually. They didn't buy any book. They wanted to test, would people buy books okay. online, yeah. right? So maybe that's the next the hypothesis. You know, at least 1% of people will buy books online. This is in the early days of the internet. So they created a website. You could see the titles of the book. You could click buy a book. And then guess what? Bezos, you know, went to the bookstore. He yeah. bought the book. He shipped the book. He collected the money. Obviously, did he lose money on every transaction? Yes, right? But what did he gain? Yoda, right? And that's the most valuable thing. So he proved that people would buy books online. And then he said, okay, because I built this prototype, now maybe I'm going to stock up on the 100 most popular books. You know, I'm going to buy a lot of them, but I don't have a full inventory. So you see, you start by having no books. Then maybe you just have the best sellers because you can buy them at a discount and do well. And then gradually you buy books on Amazon. Then you buy DVDs. Then you can buy books, DVDs, and DVD players. And now you can pretty much buy anything. Yes. So your investment increases based on the confidence that people are using your service and giving you skin in the game. I was also wondering how much hypothesis you need. So in those examples, there is one hypothesis that X of Y will do something. Z, yeah. right? But can we have more than one hypothesis related to our product that we would like to test either together or independently, like one related to value for the customers, another one related to marketing channels? Yes, you, you can have multiple can... hypotheses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I would just say skip whole hypotheses that involve that don't involve actual data. 
Right. So here's a bad hypothesis. People will buy a Tesla because it's ecological. Why is that a bad hypothesis? People may tell you, by the way, by the way, these are all real stories, right? So in Silicon Valley, as I go out my door in Mountain View, every other car is a Tesla. So they're all over, including all of my neighbors. So I asked them as part of my post-market research, I said, so, you know, Bob, why did you buy Tesla? And the first answer they give is said, well, you know, because it's electric, it's good for the environment. And I said, mm-hmm. well, but Bob, you could have bought a Nissan Leaf, right? <laughs> or one of the other electric cars. I said, well, but... And they're even cheaper, right? They're mm-hmm. even better for the environment because they have smaller batteries. I said, yeah, but they're not very sexy and they're not fast, right? So when you come up with hypothesis that you try to read people's mind or listen to what people mm-hmm. say, it doesn't work. So yeah. as long as a hypothesis is grounded, it's an objective test. It's okay to have it. So you can have a market channel hypothesis. It said more people will buy <laughs> a, a Tesla from a Tesla dealership uh, than, say, online, for example, right? Mm-hmm. And so that you, you can do a test of that hypothesis. So you can have multiple hypotheses, but remember, always then they evolve over time, right? So for Amazon, the first hypothesis was people will buy books online. Then they will buy books and DVDs online. Then books, they will buy electronics online. So it can mm-hmm. expand, but always start with one. You need a win, right? Say, okay, good. I have proven that they will buy books online. So now think about it. You have this website where people can choose a book, click buy it. Then you can do your other experiments and say, well, as a hypothesis, let's say if they will buy DVDs online. You already have your channel. So you say, okay, mm-hmm. you can buy the book of The Godfather or you can buy the DVD of The Godfather, right? And so you could say, you know, 20% of people who buy The Godfather will buy the DVD of The Godfather. And then you can do your test. Yeah, so your hypothesis can continue to grow. The metrics remain the same, right? You want to collect your own data. It has mm-hmm. to be concrete and it has to have been in the game. What's your opinion on uh, getting data from, because I'm not, I'm also not a fan of focus groups, but does it mean that we should completely ignore getting this data, qualifiable data from the people, like maybe not to validate hypotheses, but just to ideate what is possible? The mm-hmm. context for this question is that most of the products I built, because I was running a startup for five years, those were products that I had gathered personally. So I, I knew that context. I, I had the background to come up with ideas. But in some cases, those I wouldn't be able to come up with an idea without talking to the to the customer. So could you... Yeah, no, no, that's that's a good question. Customers? And I think you already hinted at the right answer. So you, you know intuitively what the answer is. There is two different phases in the life of a product of a startup. There is ideation and then there is market validation. Right. And then, of course, you have to go and build it. Right. And then execution. The mistake that people do is to take the data from the ideation phase where it's perfectly okay to have focus groups. Right. So I could say, ask people, what is the, you know, I want to write this book. What is the problem with most books? And they would say, well, most books are boring. Right. Mm-hmm. Or they are too long. Right. Or they don't have enough examples. So I think, okay, maybe I should write a book that's fun. It's not too long and it has, you know, a, a lot of examples. So that is great for getting idea. Or people say, you know, my problem is pillows are too hard. You know, so you, you do a focus groups on pillows. I can't believe how big the pillow industry is, right? Mm-hmm. So now everybody, you know, when I was a kid, you just have a pillow. Now you can buy three million, <laughs> you, you can buy $400 pillows, right? So you can do a focus groups on pillows and say, 
Yeah, I would like a pillow that's softer. Or maybe I like one where I can adjust it, you know, because some nights I want more lift, sometimes less lift. So you say, oh, great. I'm going to have a little pump that I can make the pillow thicker or softer. So it's great for coming up for ideas. So you do a pillow's focus groups, right? <laughs> People say they would like a pillow that smells nice like lavender and that's inflatable. So great. So I'm going to make, make an inflatable pillow with a fragrance diffuser because that's what the market group has told me. Now, before I do that, let me validate this actual idea. And then you don't go and build the pillow with an inflatable pillow. You do a prototype. You can just do a simple video. You can take a pillow. Okay, I'm going to take a pillow. Okay, so it's, it's really not a bad pillow because I'm not at the bed. So, so you take a pillow and then you put like a fake valve in it that looks like you can pump it or, you know, maybe you can put a button. No, here. It has the remote. I can do the video. By the way, the... One of the best prototyping techniques is called the YouTube video, right? Because in a YouTube video, you can pretend that the product works, right? Then be, be careful using it ethically, and I can explain mm -hmm. that. So I'm Alberto, and I've invented the inflatable fragrance pillow. First of all, it, I can program it, say, I want the smell of lavender tonight, okay? And then I push the button, smells fantastic. And then by pushing the button, I can inflate it or deflate it. If you, I would love to build this pillow, but first of all, I need to make sure that there is enough interest. So if you would like Alberto's Magic Inflatable Fragrance Pillow, submit your email address, and if we build it, we will let you know about it, okay? So I've conveyed what the product would do based on my market research. And, then, and by the way, I should say, and because it's a fancy pillow, you know, with the remote and everything, it will cost $90. Right. So I create this website and I go and validate the idea that I got into the focus groups and maybe it works, maybe it doesn't work, but I've separated the two things. Focus groups and surveys are for ideation and validation. You have to be very tough in ideation. Create in brainstorming, you have to be open-minded, co consider all the crazy idea. Mm -hmm. When it comes to validation, you say, just give me the data. Does it make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So this is when we define it in terms of design thinking, this is the exploring the problem space, right? That we can talk That's to right. the people and then get information about ideas and maybe come up with some ideas. But when validating ideas, we should rely on data and not what people declare on the talk because it is easy to, to just open mouth, right? Right. And I'm glad you mentioned design thinking because a lot of people ask me, well, Alberto, does, how does prototyping relate to design thinking? So first of all, Prototyping, these techniques have been taught in the very same building and rooms were designed at Stanford, where design thinking was invented and is being taught, right? So as you mentioned, design thinking it just involves thinking. You know, it's thoughtland, is doing experiment, is building prototype. And one of the challenges that you have, if you just stop with design thinking, you come up with this beautiful design, and then there is no market validation because it's all done here. Right now, even as time for people say, okay, here's design thinking, how you come up with ideas, how you make design, but then make sure that you also prototype the idea because a lot of beautiful designs go out in the market and nobody buys them. Yeah, makes sense. In the book, you also mentioned what we should do when the idea doesn't work. What's the, <laughs> the best approach? So let's say I built a prototype, I collected the data and it's either non-conclusive or it turns out that this idea is not a good idea, so I cannot confirm my hypothesis. So what are the next steps? Should I pivot immediately? Very good question. Now, if your your focus group, that, that kind of market insights, yeah, so the ideation, you come up with the idea that said, people really seem to want a pillow that they can adjust the height 
and maybe you know that has a nice smell that helps you fall asleep forever. You come up with the first iteration, but it costs ninety dollars because it has a complicated remote, it has a smell, it's all electric. So you, you say, well, maybe the problem. You don't abandon the idea completely. So think about it. One of the phrases we came up with and we teach at Stanford is fall in love with the problem, but flirt with the solution, right? So you fall in love with the idea of an inflatable fragrance pillow or advanced pillow. Don't just fixate. Yes, it has to be electronic, you know, with a 15 step control and, you know, all these electronics. Said, okay, we tried that. We posted it and we learned very few people bought it. And maybe a lot of them told us, Albert, it's too expensive. You know, I don't want to spend more than $30 on a pillow. Guess what? You have new new market data. Now, that's hard data, right? People giving you money is hard data. And people not buying what you propose is also hard data. Okay, so you say, okay, let's go back to ideation. Maybe I make the same pillow, but instead of being with the remote control and electronics, it has a little hand pump, right? So I just squeeze it and it gets thicker. And instead of having, you know, this electronic fragrance thing, it has a little, you know, you just put some drops on it and it sells for $30. So what you do is you don't go and abandon the idea completely because then you've wasted all the time, right? And also you don't continue try to sell it because, you know, there's no amount of marketing fireworks that will make a product that the market is not interested in succeeding. So you do, you know, if you want to call it a pivot, it's a pivot, right? You go a, a variation of the product. And typically what I found is that, you know, and I've done this a lot, right? With hundreds of companies and hundreds of products. Most of the time, your first solution is not right. Maybe it's too expensive, too complicated. The second one gets a little closer. And then, you know, you kind of zigzag a little bit. And as long as you do keep doing this experiment, eventually you hit the the sweet spot. You know, some people calling pivoting, I call it exploring because the, the way I see it, here's the space, okay, the space of the solution of, you know, the, the, the smart pillows, but they write it, you know, maybe on this corner, right, where it's like $30 and manual, as opposed to in this corner, where it's like $90 and fancy electronics. So you want to explore the space. Now, what happens? Let's say you've explored the space, you have a 10 different ideas. So you look here, you look there, you go up, you go down in price, you try all these things, and then you have no answer. It's still possible that there is a solution there. But, you know, it just at some point you have to learn, okay, I've done 10 experiments. People say they're interested, but maybe a smart pillow is not what people want. And at that point, I guess it's wiser uh, to move. Yeah, what I love about this approach is that you don't have to build a product every time to run another experiment, right? It's just a cheap prototyping technique so you can... If you we are talking about video, record another version of the video and test it, test it, test it. You got it exactly. So in one week, would you agree? Let's say you and I partner to come up with a smart inflatable pillow. Do you agree that with this approach, in one week, we can test five different versions and five different price points? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So you make five, five quick little videos with different price points and different features. And then you find... People don't care about the remote, you know, if they can inflate it by hand and pay $30, this is the successful one. So you you got it. And then we can go out and build that. I wonder, because those techniques are new, there is a Lean startup, which also put an emphasis on getting validated learning with minimal effort, right? But for some reason, people are not doing it, are not applying this knowledge in practice, even though this is easily accessible 
and you can you can find that information. How can we foster this culture in, in organizations that experimenting, prototyping, uh, testing ideas cheaply becomes the second nature? Yeah, well, you know, the people who are exposed to it, 80-90% of them get it and it really changes the way they do things. I work, I like to help entrepreneurs, but I also work with very large companies, right? So Fortune 50 companies. And usually people think, well, Alberto, we would I love this idea. But there's no way that our management will ever go into it because we like to build everything perfect before we launch it. Then typically what happens is that, well, are, are you so sure? Because uh, I tell you this, get me meeting with the CEO or the VP of products or whoever. I'm into numbers and I don't like to make numbers up. So I'm just real statistic. I have never, ever in hundreds of meetings and presentations talking about the prototyping approach, had somebody smart enough at a high level, CEO or VP, mm -hmm. who did not say, this, this makes perfect sense. And typically they say, I can't believe they didn't teach this <laughs> to me during the MBA, right? The X, Y, Z hypothesis, the prototyping, because I tell them, look inside your own companies. How many projects did you launch with 100% confidence that they were going to be successful and then failed? And if they reach those positions, they've been exposed mm -hmm. to it before. So I tell you, it has like zero, zero percent. Everybody who hears it understands the, the logic. Why? Because mm -hmm. if you read the book, I, I hope you can agree. Everything I tell you, right, it just follows logically. Come up with a hypothesis. Is it yeah, good yeah, to yeah. have a hypothesis? Yeah. <laughs> Is it good yeah. to test the hypothesis before you spend no. a lot of money to build it? Yes, because most of them fail. So is it does it make sense that you collect skin in the game? Yes. So as an engineer, I look at it like a very simple proof. Two plus two plus two equals six. Okay, find something wrong in it. Nobody has ever been able to find something wrong in it. So yeah, to me, the only way that this will not be adopted is two ways. One, people do not know about it. Number two, and this, well, okay, three reasons. Number two, People have fallen in love with their idea and they will not hear anything. This is usually entrepreneurs, right? Just, and, and you know what? Sometimes I have some ideas that I really want to bring them into the world and I don't care if they will succeed or not. Maybe I'm, I'm dying to write a book about squirrels and I don't care if nobody, if nobody buys it, right? I just, it's important for me to write this book. In that case, I said, God bless you. Go, go, go ahead make it happen, right? Just don't expect success. But here's, be careful. But if you ask people for money, so as an entrepreneur, I'm very passionate about doing this. But if I ask people for money, either I borrow from friends and family or go to VCs, they don't care about you really achieving your dream, right? So the moment you take other people's money, you must step out to say, well, this is my dream, but I have a responsibility to others. So that's one of the reasons people don't do this market validation. The third one that I found is very psychological and it's fear of rejection, right? Just like in romantic love, you really like this person, right? And you would like to ask them on a date, but you're afraid of being rejected. So you think, well, maybe, no, I lose a little bit more weight and I do something with my hair, you know, or I get a, get a nicer car. So yeah. you do all of this preparation and, and then you don't go and act. So let me tell you, market rejection hurts just like romantic rejection, right? You build your beauty, you're in love with your product, you build it, and then you expect them to love it and you bring it in the market and nobody buys it. 
it hurts. You know, I, I've done it personally. I spent a lot of time doing certain things and I launch them and nobody buys them. And it's, it's afraid. So people don't like to be rejected. They don't like failure. So they keep postponing it. They try to make the product perfect. That's the other reason why you wouldn't want to prototype. I noticed that the more time you invest, the more energy you invest, the more you care about this idea and you want to make it That's perfect. Right. You want to make That's it right. work. Anything else we can discuss, Alberto? No, I, you know, I, 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 I would like to give you credit for doing you know, a, a great job and bringing all of these ideas together, all the various aspects of, of product management. My take, right, so we, we work with the same people. You're just, you're much better. I am an expert in a particular field, right? Uh -huh. I consider what I do to be like the ABCs or the basic arithmetic of product management, right? You have to get this right. Then, of course, there's many other steps, right? How do you build a company around it? How do you scale it, right? Uh, how, how do you execute? So there is a sequence, but my goal, my, my part is to just be there for the beginning. Because if you begin with a product that people want, then I'm sure you agree. Everything becomes easy. It's just like the wind <laughs> is at your back. Uh -huh. Everybody is your friend. They want to help you. If nobody really wants a product, everything goes goes uphill. So I I take pride and I want to be the best in this very important initial stage, right? You know, uh, Peter Thiel wrote zero to one. Think of me, I, I go from minus one to zero, right? Or 0 0.1, you know, 0 0.1 is the, is the prototype. And I, I like what you do because my job finishes, I, I become completely useless after you said, boy, people really want to buy the smart inflatable fragrance pillow. I say, great, Alberto, do you know anything about building pillows? No, marketing pillows, zero, right? So the product management doesn't stop when you have found the right it. And that's why, you know, I, I like the fact that you, you very systematically teach people, look, and I hope that, you know, as we go forward, you start this, look, always start, make sure that you have the right it. And then how do you build it right? You market it right, you sell it right, you service it right. So I see in my role, I'm a super, super, super specialist, right? I'm, I'm like the neonatal doctor, right? Mm -hmm. I, help, I help you deliver a healthy baby, right? <laughs> and then, so I say, okay, uh -huh. the, it's a healthy baby. And then I need, you need a lot of other people to do it. And what I see you doing is that uh, you do very well. So say, look, these are the sequences. These are the best books, I don't know, for scaling up. These are the best books of, you know, for you're you the expert. You see, I'm not an expert. After I make sure that you have the right it, I hand it to somebody else. And then I go off and help the other people make sure that they're building the right it. So good good work. I mean, that's why I contacted you. He's doing something very valuable because a lot of the time, two tragedies, people build the wrong it and they fail and they come to me and said, Alberto, how can I build the right it? And then they say, Alberto, we had this idea for a product. We put it, we collected 50 deposits for $50. What do we do now? It said, now we have to build the product set. Okay, now you need to go to other people. There is a sequence, right? So uh, there is my book, The Write It. There's another book called uh, The Lean Product Playbook by Dan Olson. That's very good. He would be another great guest for your show. Yeah, I have so, recommended it many times. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah. I'm about the idea. Make sure that you have the right idea. Then you have to build the right product. And then when you have the right product, maybe you read the Lean Startup because then you build the startup around it, right? Mm -hmm. And then maybe you read Blitz Scaling. Once you have the startup, how do you actually scale? So it's important to have the sequence. You don't start with the Lean Startup 
because mm. you, you gotta have something to start with, right? And so I believe in, you know, just in a sequence through the ABCs and then kind of grow from that. So I mm. see that's a way that you can really help people because people think, oh, I buy a book about product management. Or by the way, you also talk about, you know, some of the books you, you talk about are about user interface, right? User design. These are all things that go into product management, but each of them is separate and comes at the important time. And I think you do a very, very good job of exposing all of these things, but also putting them into context, right? The sequence matter, right? If I want to make pasta, I don't first put the spaghetti and the sauce, and then I put boiling water on top of it, right? You First you boil the water, then you put the spaghetti, right? And then you put drain them and put the sauce. So the sequence matter, and in product development, it matters a lot. Begin by doing your market exploration, you know, the ideation, mm-hmm. and then you do the validation, and then you do the execution. Okay, so that was, thank you. That was incredibly insightful. I really appreciate your taking time to share your experience and knowledge. The book is visible all the time, but I also have it here. So once again, Thank you. Yes. it is highly recommended. Yeah, I wish I had discovered it previously. I discovered it just this year, but I have been recommending it since then. That's the one comment that I get. I wish I'd read the book before, you know, and then insert failure story because we could have completely avoided the failure. And every time I hear that, I said, one, welcome to the club. And two, thank you, because that's exactly what I wrote the book. Not all failures are avoidable, but some are. The worst way to fail is to fail. And then you go back and said, you know, if I'd only done this little experiment, I would have learned that lesson. Right. So people say, is failure good? Is failure bad? And I would say there's two types of failure. There's good failure and bad failure. Good failure is when the value of the lesson is greater than the cost of the lesson. Right. So if we build our inflatable pillow, we, we do it one day doing the video and we find out people don't want to waste $90. That's a good failure, right? The cost of the lesson is very small. The value is great. Bad failure is when the value of the lesson is much less than the cost of the lesson. We built 1,000 smart pillows that sell for $99 and nobody's buy them. So that is what I consider a bad failure. So I, I want people to help. If you have to fail, make sure that it's a, it's a good failure. Right. <laughs> I agree. Uh, so, Alberto, where, where can people find you if they will have some additional questions or want to just to reach you? Yeah, so type Alberto Savoia in Google and, you know, you get my website, you get the books, huh? relatively unique name. And so, so I'm, I'm the first result that pops up. And now, since you talk about questions, you know, some of the startups I'm working with are doing, you know, are working in AI and uh, so sometimes I get a lot of questions, right? I, I do my best to answer everybody who asks me a question. Some days so I said, okay, I cannot. <laughs> I mean, literally my, my hands hurt, right? From too much time at the keyboard. So one talk about a prototype that I'm doing right now is with a company that's trying to create an AI version of Alberto, of the author called AI Berto. And uh, so they ingested my books. They ingested, you know, kind of my videos and uh, some of my Q&As. And so I think in the future, you can ask uh, the real Alberto questions, you know, online, or you can ask the AI Berto. And let's see, you know, if I can put myself out of a job. Right now, I would say half of my clients and people that contact me are are trying to figure out how to use AI. And I've never had something happen that fast ever. So it went from zero to 50%, well, in three, four months. So there's clearly a lot of interest in that. I will also put some links in the in the video description. Alberto, thanks again for being here today. 
and hi everyone thank you pavel it's, it's been it's been a fantastic it's been a a lot of fun i think you're doing a great job and you know i, I look forward to seeing you as number one on the product market uh, influencers thank you so much for listening to the product compass podcast if you liked it subscribe to my youtube channel and consider leaving reaction or comment as it helps the algorithm let's learn and grow together take care